at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. And I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, good on camera, end all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things, and invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. Are you tired? of swimming through a sea of podcasts. Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit face McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. 
We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be like in front of an audience, like other than like squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot, from time to time, I've given it a thought or two. You know, if you go to joke workshops, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke?
A long-haired preacher's come out every night Try to tell you what's wrong and what's right uh, But when asked about something to eat uh, They will answer in voices so sweet Hey, you will by and by In that glorious land in the sky Work and pray, live on hay You'll get pie in the sky when you die That's a lie Now, Joe Hill was executed by the state of Utah November 19, 1915 For writing songs like this huh? But he left them to us These are our people's songs So you damn well ought to learn how to sing it, don't you think? Huh? It's done Baptist style I must be some Baptists around here somewhere you understand what I mean? Are there Baptists here? Good. <laughs> Let's answer back. I sing out a line, and then you sing it back, and then we sing a line together. All right? And you follow these guys. You will eat. You will eat. By and by. By and by. In that glorious land in the sky. Way up high. Work and pray. Work and pray. I'll live on hay. Live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. That's a lie. Yeah, real vociferous on that last part, all right? And the starvation army they play. And they shout and they clap and they pray. Uh, when they've got all your coins on the drum, and they will tell you when you're on the bomb. Are you ready? Jump and they shout, I'll give your money to Jesus, they say, and you'll eat on that glorious day. Hey, you will eat, you will eat, by and by, by and by, in that glorious land in the sky. I'll work and pray, live on hay, you'll get by in the sky when you die, that's a Side by side, we for freedom shall fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, uh, uh, to the grafters we'll sing this refrain. Hey, you will eat, by and by, uh, when you've learned how to cook and how to fry. Chop some wood, chop some wood, do you good, and you'll eat in that sweet by and by. That's no. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me dio dos luceros. 
que cuando los abro perfecto distingo lo negro del blanco y en el alto cielo su fondo estrellado y en las multitudes el hombre que yo amo Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me ha dado el oído que en todo su ancho graba noche y días, grillos y canarios, martillos, turbinas, ladridos, chubascos voz tan tierna de mi bien amado gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me ha dado el sonido y el abecedario con él las palabras que pienso y declaro Madre, amigo, hermano y luz alumbrando la ruta del alma del que estoy amando. Gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto, me ha dado la marcha de mis pies cansados con ellos anduve ciudades y charcos playas y desiertos montañas y llanos y la casa tuya tu calle y tu patio gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me dio el corazón que agita su marco cuando miro el fruto del cerebro humano cuando miro el bueno tan lejos del malo de tus ojos claros gracias a la vida que me ha dado tanto me ha dado la risa y me ha dado el llanto así yo distingo dicha de quebranto los dos materiales que forman mi canto y el canto de ustedes que es el mismo canto y el canto de todos que es mi propio canto gracias a la vida
And good morning, labor and lovers. This is <clears throat> the B, a.k.a. Bill Morgan, welcoming you to the Labor and Love radio show, which we do here every Saturday from our studios at uh, 2781 21st Street in San Francisco, in the heart of the Mission District, El Mero Mero. <clears throat> Every week we bring you the truth about your work. For example, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. For example, if you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, or there's not somebody there re representing you, you're on the menu. They're going to be talking about you, and that's your life. Those moments when you're on the job is your life. So I would suggest you involve yourself in that discussion any way you can, whether it be by having a union representation or having a voice that you, a direct action voice where you challenge your employer when uh, the employer is uh, exploiting you, which is just about all the time. Finally, never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's just a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. We feature labor news, opinion, commentary, history, every Saturday here, and music of social significance. We started out today with a set. The last thing you heard was Gracias a la Vida. Gracias a la Vida. By Mercedes Sosa. Uh, before that, we had what was supposed to be a woman speaking. This is Women's Month, so I'm going to do all women shows. Technically, I suppose Utah Phillips there was backed up by Annie DeFranco. Um, and of the name of the, <coughs> excuse me, uh, Joe Hillsong, Lying Preachers Come Out Every Night, Pie in the Sky, it's called. And finally, to kick off our session here, we had uh, Michelle Ngocheo with The House of the Rising Sun. If there's one thing we're going to uh, emphasize today, it's uh, the experience of women and the experience of women in their workplace, whether it's uh, a throne room in Hawaii or uh, the streets. Queen Latifah. Let's play some Queen right now. This woman is remarkable. Uh, did you really 
got a career. She started out as a rapper, as you'll hear, and became a, one of the big stars of the silver screen, as they used to say. Um, okay, so we'll play her after a while. We got Aaliyah today. We got Buffy St. Marie. We got a poem from Sylvia Plath. We got Queen Lilokalani and the Stolen Kingdom of Hawaii. We're going to hear from the Weavers with Ronnie Gilbert. We're going to hear <coughs> Union Maid. We saw, heard Hush the Rising Sun. La Linea with Lila Downs. Cafeteras, Barbara Dane, Amy Lou Harris. We got it all. Plus, the National Labor Relations Board. What is it? Why is America so afraid of socialism? Let's talk a bit about this American Rescue Plan that just passed. First of all, it's a miracle that something like this could pass, and that's only because of the hard work of organizers in Georgia and all over the country. We're finally able, even if by a razor-thin majority, to achieve a situation where the government can actually relate to what people really want, what people really need, instead of what business people need or what media moguls say they need. People need money, and they need it now, and that's what this plan is supposed to deliver. Okay, what else do they need? Well, parents need child credits, child tax credits. What else do they need? They need a coherent, a coherent message about when and how and why go to go back to work. need to stop shooting down young men of color on the street, working class people, by the way, on the street. All these things are needed and much more. We'll see how we go, but Mr. Biden has achieved his first step. This law has passed without one, without one Republican vote. For that, they'll pay. When you go back to get elected in 2022, <clears throat> we're going to remember. Right, yeah, we're going to remember that you didn't vote for it. These are the same people who say that this plan to cut childhood hunger in half, cutting childhood hunger in half from 13 million that's the number of children who go to sleep hungry, who are below the poverty line, don't have enough food to eat. And you can bet those are working class people. I don't know. I can't tell you how many rich people are without food. It's a, a hard one, hard statistic to find. <clears throat> Okay, let's listen to uh, Radio Labor. Huh? 
Radio Labor is our worldwide report on the state of the labor movement worldwide. The Radio Labor World Report. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labour. This is a Radio Labour World Report recorded on Friday, March 12, 2021. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, Biden supports unionization of Amazon workers. Labour asks workers about their pandemic experiences. The Labour Start report about union events and singing. This is Radio Labor. I've long said America wasn't built by Wall Street. It was built by the middle class, and unions built the middle class. U.S. President Joe Biden has shown his commitment for the labor movement by supporting a union drive by Amazon workers in Bessemer, a city in the deep south state of Alabama. Almost 6,000 workers at the Amazon warehouse are in the middle of a union vote on whether to join the Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union, the RWDSU. The vote is taking place by mail ballot and is scheduled to end on March 30th. Amazon has more than 400,000 workers in hundreds of warehouses across the country. It has been using viciously anti-union tactics in order to get the workers at the Alabama plant to vote against unionization. Mr. Biden. The unions put power in the hands of workers. They level the playing field. They give you a stronger voice for your health, your safety, higher wages, protections from racial discrimination and sexual harassment. Unions lift up workers, both union and non-union, and especially black and brown workers. I've made it clear, made it clear when I was running, that my administration's policy would be to support unions organizing and the right to collectively bargain. I'm keeping that promise. You should all remember, the National Labor Relations Act didn't just say that unions are allowed to exist. It said we should encourage unions. So let me be really clear. It's not up to me to decide whether anyone should join a union. But let me be even more clear. It's not up to an employer to decide that either. The choice to join a union is up to the workers, full stop, full stop. Today and over the next few days and weeks, workers in Alabama and all across America are voting on whether to organize a union in their workplace. This is vitally important, a vitally important choice as America grapples with the deadly pandemic the economic crisis and the reckoning on race, what it reveals, the deep disparities that still exist in our country. And there should be no intimidation, no coercion, no threats, no anti-union propaganda. No supervisor, no supervisor should confront employees about their union preferences. You know, every worker should have a free and fair choice to join a union. The law guarantees that choice. And it's your right not that of an employer. It's your right 
No employer can take that right away. So make your voice heard. God bless you all, and may God protect the workers and their families who are trying to figure out how to make it, make it fairly. Stuart Applebaum is the president of the RWDSU, the union the Amazon workers are trying to join. When he ran for office, he said he was going to be the most pro-union president we've seen in history, and he's delivering on that. I think that it's clear, not just to me, but more importantly to the workers, that his message was directed to them. He spoke about organizing in Alabama, which is what it is they are doing. And he gave them hope and he gave them strength. They're facing an extraordinary anti-union campaign from the company. And President Biden called out tactics like that. And he reminded people that it's the policy of this country to encourage collective bargaining. This campaign began when workers came to us. The facility only opened last March, and already people felt that the conditions there were unbearable and there needed to be change because they are not respected, they are not treated with dignity, they have to worry about whether or not they can go to the bathroom, and they leave there often injured and with stress. And they felt they needed a change, so they came to the union looking for change. The international labor movement is marking the one-year anniversary of the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the projects has been to ask unionists around the world to talk about their experiences. The project has been organized by the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC represents national labor centers such as the Nigeria Labor Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. Sharon Burrow is the ITUC's general secretary. Workers all around the world have been living with COVID-19 for a year now since the World Health Organization declared it a pandemic. There's no doubt that we've seen many new areas of language enter our lexicon. Who heard of furloughs or lockdowns or quarantine or the question of bubbles? All of these measures. But for me, three words stand out. One is frontline workers, those incredible workers, the majority of them women who went to work every day to save lives, to keep us protected, but are amongst the lowest paid. Then there's the loss of jobs, job cuts everywhere, people without hope of livelihoods. We need to see investment in jobs, in care, in climate-friendly jobs from every government. And of course, there is vaccination, the ugly side of nationalism, vaccine nationalism, where the COVID uh, reality is global, we're interdependent, but indeed the wealthy countries are hoarding vaccines and the big pharma companies are refusing to share their technology so that in fact it could be produced everywhere. Vaccine nationalism is ugly and must be eliminated. But can I say I'm very proud of trade unions, working people everywhere who fought for advances on the social contract to protect each other.
One of the unionists who has been participating in the COVID experience project is Akatoa Joel Odigi, the Deputy General Secretary of ITUC Africa. He was asked to pick three of the most important experiences he has had since the pandemic started a year ago. Number one would be face masks. Number two would be, hey kids, can you please keep your voices down? And number three would be PPEs. Why have I chosen these three words? First, face masks. Upon uh, COVID-19 becoming a uh, I declared as a pandemic, there was a bit of panic, hysteria. And so the whole lot of how you keep safe became one of the things everybody took to heart. Uh, keeping safe then means you have to observe some hygienic protocols. And for me, a fixed mask became uh, the scene of it. All of a sudden, fixed mask was out of supply. And immediately after, fixed mask was everywhere being distributed and people all over having a fixed mask. And it became uh, uh, more like a, uh, an offense, a crime, if you are not wearing one. And so enforcement became part of it. And a lot of persons made informal uh, businesses from it. Hey, kids, you are, can you please keep your voices down? I've been working from home uh, since uh, March. So it's over a year, so to say, that I've been working from home. Our office is based in Lome, Togo, but I'm working from Abuja, Nigeria. And so I have to also joining the attacks of trying to take care of the kids and then manage their excitement, especially when uh, they were not in schools, when the schools were also locked down. So it was a bit of challenge having to deal with children at home and you are working at home, even while you have your uh, space. And then PPEs, of course, that, was, that has still been the challenge for most uh, developing countries. And that's why some of us are excited about COVAX. This whole idea that uh, we can generally uh, through our humanity and solidarity, mobilize resources that can help take care of everybody. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of their work. Our top stories section included links to coverage of how and why trade unions have emerged along with university students as the key organizers of the demonstrations against the military coup in Myanmar. Unions have proved far more effective than Myanmar's political parties in the struggle for a return to democracy. And this week, we carried some good news about the United States labor policy, something we haven't been able to do for a very long time. The changes just this week were drastic and included Biden's encouragement of the workers who are organizing at Amazon. Sadly and in anger, we also have a great many stories about the reaction of Filipino trade unions to the murder of nine activists there. And of course, we had a great many stories covering International Women's Day celebrations from around the world. The ways in which women workers and their unions marked the day ranged from online conferences and memorials through to equality strikes. But regardless of where the events happened and what forms they took, they did share a common theme, how the pandemic has exposed and increased inequality. And of course, International Women's Day this year was a day for organizing for the coming struggle for a pandemic recovery that goes beyond a return to what was and makes the world instead a more equitable place.
For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news not just of International Women's Day. We had coverage of a pay equity victory for Canadian nurses, the challenges that COVID-19 has created for South African domestic workers, and profiles of some of the key organizers in the fight against femicide in Mexico. This week's photo of the week is of one of a pre-COVID-19 International Women's Day when maskless Bangladeshi women marched for safer workplaces in 2006. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with unionists in Pakistan who are fighting against a union-busting multinational food wholesaler. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is the English folk singer Billy Bragg with There's Power in a Union. There's power in a factory, power in the land, power in the hand of the worker. But it all amounts to nothing if together we don't stand. There is power in a union. Now the lessons of the past are all learned with workers' blood. Strikes of the bosses we must fight for. From the cities and the farmlands to trenches full of mud. War has always been the bosses wiser. The union forever defending our rights. Down with the back leg, the workers unite. With our brothers and our sisters from many far off lands. There is power in our union. Just laws cannot defeat us. But who defend the workers who cannot organize? When the bosses send their lackeys out to cheat us. Money speaks for money, the devil for his own. Who comes to speak for the skin and the bone? What a comfort to the widow, a light to the child. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
Okay, that set of socially significant music. Last one, of course, Joan Baez singing for the uh, four little girls who were murdered uh, when their church blew up by uh, <coughs> white supremacist Klansmen. Birmingham Sunday. Before that, a favorite of mine, Amy Lou Harris, working girl, sweeping out a warehouse in West L.A. It's all right because she's got two more bottles of wine. Queen Lativa before that. With her tough response to people who call women bitches and hoes. And to men who treat them like that. U-N-I-T-Y, unity, who you calling a bitch? And uh, as a coda for our uh, radio labor feature, we had a version of Power in the Union by Billy Bragg, the uh, English folk singer. I wouldn't call him a folk singer. Certainly a union song. So we're continuing our appreciation this month of women. You'll notice most, most of our music is by women. And I want to play as people are talking about, people I know are talking about going to Hawaii again. <clears throat> seems that things are opening up. I wouldn't be too ready to jump in, but Hawaii has kind of uh, developed as a playground for well-to-do and medium-to-do whites to go and play, and actually from people all over the world. How did this happen? Well, it's unfortunate, but like so much of American history, when we look a little closer, we see a horrific story of uh, racial domination and killing and outright theft of land and labor and resources. This one is about Queen Liliuokalani, the last queen of Hawaii, and a composer, by the way, of the Hawaiian National Anthem, but we'll get to that a little later. Let's listen now. Just over a century ago, there was an isolated kingdom called Hawaii, an independent nation with a parliament, its own flag, a national anthem, and a beloved queen, Liliuo Kalani. But in 1893, she was removed from her throne with the help of the United States Marines. It was a great loss to her people. If you can imagine something within your own culture that is tremendously important to you, that is suddenly done away with, just 
totally ripped out and gone. If you can imagine yourself relating to something like that, that's what we went through. Lili'uo Kalali was descended from generations of chiefs revered by the Hawaiians as gods. She had been educated by Americans. A poet and composer, she dined at the White House, was a guest at Buckingham Palace, but nothing had prepared her for the crisis she would face as queen. Lili'u was well-versed in the Western culture, well-versed in the Hawaiian culture, and knew the values of both sides, uh, and knew, knew the inevitable of what was going to happen to Hawaii. When Lili'u was born in 1838, the chanting lasted for days. It was the way to herald new arrivals among the Ali'i, the high chiefs of the islands. But by this time, many of the old ways had already vanished. It would take 10 days for news of the queen's overthrow to reach the outside world. On January 18, 1893, the day after she surrendered, Lili Uokalani went for a ride in her carriage. On her way back, she told her driver not to turn into the palace, but instead to take her to her private residence, Washington Place. She firmly believed her exile would be brief, that the United States would recognize the error and she would be reinstated. On February 1st, Minister Stevens ceremonially raised the American flag over the government building. Lili Uokalani wrote in her diary, Time may wear off the feeling of injury, but my dear flag, the Hawaiian flag, that a strange flag should wave over it. May heaven look down on these missionaries and punish them for their deeds. The palace was renamed the executive building. Martial law was declared and would be enforced by the ragtag army of the provisional government. There was a blackening out of things, uh, of news. But our people were able to find a means of protest because they were told by their leader, their queen, not to take up arms. They began wearing hat bands that said aloha aina, that meant patriotism. They began to make quilts that had the Hawaiian flag because the Hawaiian flag had been banned. Here she was denied all reading material except for her prayer book. During this time, she composed a number of pieces including the Queen's Prayer. Fearing that she would die a prisoner, Liliuo Kalani embroidered a quilt with a record of her life. Lydia Kamakaeha Liliuo Kalani ascended the throne. 
January 29th, 1891. Dethroned January 17th, 1893. Imprisoned at Iolani Palace, we began this quilt there. It was during her imprisonment that she would formally abdicate the throne. Under the threat that uh, six of her people will be executed, she signs a document that is not only an abdication for herself, but uh, a statement that the monarchy itself is over, that the kingdom is no more. The news strikes the Hawaiian people with great force because to them she was still queen. On September 6, 1895, after eight months imprisonment, Liliuo Kalani was released on parole to Washington Place. It would take another two years before her civil rights were fully restored. The provisional government had established the Republic of Hawaii with Sanford Dole as president, but they had still not succeeded in their ultimate goal, annexation to the United States. In 1898, when the Spanish-American War broke out, American troops headed to the Philippines. President McKinley recognized the strategic value of Hawaii and supported a congressional resolution for annexation. On August 12, 1898, in a grand ceremony, President Dole formally yielded the sovereignty and public property of the Hawaiian Islands to the United States. The Stars and Stripes was slowly raised over Iolani Palace, and the Hawaiian flag was brought down for the last time. But few Hawaiians would witness the ceremony. Most spent the day at home behind closed blinds. On the actual day of annexation, the queen shuddered herself at Washington Place, surrounded by her court, by the princes, by her ladies-in-waiting, and they had a solemn picture taken. On the other side at Iolani Palace, there were sharpshooters pointed out, there was still tension in the air that something might happen, but when the Hawaiian flag was lowered, it was said that it was cut into small little two to three inch ribbons and given out as tokens of remembrance to the sons and daughters of the missionary families so that they could keep those as little tokens of their great victory over the Hawaiian kingdom and the end of the tyranny of the Hawaiian monarchy. Liliuo Kalani would live for another 20 years as an American citizen in the United States territory of Hawaii. By the time of her death at the age of 79, she had become the embodiment of the kingdom itself and of its loss. For weeks after her funeral, strange events were recorded in the islands. Volcanoes erupted, 
and the seas turned an odd hue from the sudden appearance of a multitude of red fish. It was as if the elements recognized that the kingdom was no more. So that's the story of uh, Lili Okalani, Lili Uokalani. And I want to find uh, song that she made. <clears throat> This is a version of Playing for Change of the song Aloha Oi, composed by Queen Liliuokalani.
the <clears throat> story of a queen whose kingdom was taken from her and of a people who lost their lands. Liliuokalani and her composition, Aloha Oi, the Hawaiian national anthem, and I do say national. The Hawaiian nation still exists. <clears throat> there are people still resisting the uh, takeover of Hawaii. 1998. This is the Labor and Love Show, and uh, I want to play a part of Studs Terkel's excellent book about people's lives and their work called Working. This one focuses on women. in the workplace. I think I've always known what I wanted out of life. More. I was 15. I was sitting in a coffee shop when a friend came by and said, hurry up, I've got a cab waiting. You can make $100 in 20 minutes. We went to a penthouse. The guy up there was quite well known. He wanted to watch two women do it, and then he wanted to have sex with me. <laughs> it was barely sex. He was almost finished by the time we started. It was a tremendous kick. <laughs> I mean, there I was, doing nothing, being nothing. And in 20 minutes, I would walk out the door with $100 in my pocket. But just out of curiosity, um, how many of you make $100 for 20 minutes work? Uh-huh. <laughs> I was still in high school. I think of myself as an upper-class working girl. The press calls me a socialite, which is just another name for a well-dressed fundraiser. I began in the 80s. I gave a party in Washington for Nicaraguan refugee children. It wasn't for the Contras, although I'm sure that would have been lots of fun, too. But fundraising is work. It's hard to separate people from their money. It's a marketplace transaction. Somehow I managed to absorb that when I was young. I was a precocious child. Actually, um, I was sort of lonely. I didn't experience myself as being attractive. I didn't look like a Calvin Klein ad. I was bright and I didn't play by the rules. Guys were mostly scared of me. They didn't want to get involved emotionally, but they did want to screw. For a while, I was willing to accept that. It was feeling intimacy, feeling warm, feeling. Oh, the other day, I was riding around New York in a limousine during a hotel strike, and there was nowhere to go. And I thought, now I know what it feels like to be a bag lady. <laughs> well, you can't pick up every homeless person and bring them home with you. But if you can help by saying something entertaining, you bring a light into their eyes. Maybe that's what the word social light means. <laughs> you become your job. I've become a hustler. I mean, even when I'm not hustling, I'm a hustler. What you do is what you are. 
I don't think it's terribly different from somebody who works on an assembly line 40 hours a week and comes home cut off, numb. People aren't built to switch on and off like water faucets. I work in a luggage factory. We make suitcases. The tank I work at is six foot deep, eight feet square. In 40 seconds, you have to take the wet felt out of the felter. Put the blanket on to draw out the excess moisture. Wait two, three seconds. Take the blanket off. Pick the wet felt up and balance it on your shoulder. Reach over, get the hose. Spray the inside with copper screen. Turn around, walk to the hot, dry guy behind you. Take the hot piece off and set it on the floor. Put the wet piece on the dry dye. Push this button. Inspect the piece we just took off. Stack it and count it. 40 seconds. In the summertime, the temperature at our workstation ranges anywhere from 100 to 150 degrees. I've taken the thermometers and checked it out. I have arthritis in the joints of my fingers, naturally in my shoulder, balancing this wet piece. The hose will sometimes leak and spray back on you. The hydraulic presses leak, so you're slipping on oil. You have the possibility of being burnt every time the hot dye hits that wet felt. You're engulfed in a cloud of steam every 40 seconds. The tanks run 24 hours a day. I work eight straight hours with two 10-minute breaks and one 20-minute break for lunch. I find it difficult to eat my lunch in that length of time. 40 seconds. Granddad was a sailor, and he blew in off the water. My father was a farmer, and I his only daughter. And I took up with a no-good mill-working man from Massachusetts who died from too much whiskey and leaves me these three faces to feed. Mill-work ain't easy. Mill-work ain't hard. Mill-work most often is a goddamn awful boring job and I'm waiting for a daydream to take me through the morning put me in my coffee break where I can have my sandwich and remember it's me and my machine for the rest of the morning for the rest of the And the rest of my life. 40 seconds. They can't keep men on the tanks. They say it's too monotonous. I think women adjust to monotony better than men do because their minds are used to doing two things at once, where a man can only think of one thing at a time. A woman can listen to a child while she's doing something else. It's the same way on the tanks. You get to be automatic in what you're doing, and your mind is doing my mind begins to wander to my days back on the farm and i can see my father smiling at me swinging on his arm and i can hear my granddad's stories of the storms out on lake erie 
wish you didn't have to work in a factory when it's all you know how to do that's what you do And that was from the uh, <clears throat> stage version of the Studs Terkel book called Working, the experiences of a mill worker and some monologues of women and the kind of work they do. One of them uh, gets paid $100 for 20 minutes prostitution. And another raises money. Um, unfortunately, most of us are forced into prostitution of one kind or another. It could be the actual body prostitution where you sell your body, or it could be <coughs> kind of prostitution where you sell your life, you sell your soul every day. This is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love. It's all about labor and love. And here's our feature. Every week we bring you labor history in two minutes. The Radium Girls. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1925. That was the day the first civil lawsuit for damages was filed on behalf of the Radium Girls. During the 1910s and 20s, radium was all the rage. It was considered a medical cure-all for everything from blindness to asthma. The U.S. Radium Corporation employed hundreds of young women in New Jersey and Illinois to paint radium onto watch dials and military instruments. Women workers were instructed to shape the paintbrushes to a fine point with their lips in order to paint the numbers onto the watch faces. They soon fell ill. Many complained of losing scores of teeth and shattered and rotting jaws. The death toll began to rise. U.S. Radium and other related companies initially tried to smear the women as suffering from syphilis. Catherine Wiley of the New Jersey Consumers League began investigating the use of radium by dial painters. She was also concerned about how emissions affected the community surrounding the plant. Wiley enlisted the help of Alice Hamilton, mother of industrial medicine and occupational toxicology. The chief medical examiner of Essex County determined the women suffered from radium exposure. They were exhaling radon gas. The findings were earth-shattering for the industry. Case proceedings were highly publicized in the press. Extremely frail and sick young women appeared in court, barely able to walk or testify. The company agreed to settle the case. $10,000 for each woman, a $400 a year pension, and medical care. Women at the Ottawa plant suffered for years before finally learning the truth about their job-related illnesses. The case impacted fields related to occupational safety and health. It also fundamentally broadened scientific understanding of radioactive elements. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. 
I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1963. That was the day Transport Workers Union Local 260 negotiated its first contract with the Pioneer Bus Company in Houston, Texas. It came after months of fighting to build an integrated union there. The local had learned the previous year that Pioneer was organized by an independent union that maintained Jim Crow bargaining units. The drivers, dispatchers, and shop employees union maintained separate and unequal bargaining units, one for white workers and one for black workers. They also had separate seniority lists, representation, and levels of promotion. The Transport Workers Union filed a petition with the National Labor Relations Board against the driver's union. They demanded an election. The existing union argued that collective bargaining agreements already existed, which precluded any possibility of holding a new election for representation. The TWU pushed back. They contended that the contract bar rule could not apply to discriminatory agreements that divided workers along racial lines. The TWU also argued that it would be unconstitutional for the board to uphold Jim Crow contracts. The board agreed with the TWU and threatened to decertify the driver's union on the basis of racial discrimination. They concluded that where the bargaining representative of employees in an appropriate union executes separate contracts or even a single contract discriminating between Negro and white employees on racial lines, the board will not deem such contracts as a bar to an election. In the days before the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the board drew from Brown versus Board of Education to issue its ruling in December of 1962. The TWU won the election by a three-to-one margin and championed the end of Jim Crow at Pioneer. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2012. That was the day OSHA released its memorandum titled Employer Safety Incentive and Disincentive Practices. It addressed compliance officers and whistleblower investigators. It touched on employer practices that discouraged the reporting of injuries and illnesses on the job. The memorandum stated that employee reporting is a protected right. It also asserted that employer discouragement could constitute a violation of whistleblower statutes like 11C of the OSHA Act and record-keeping regulations. OSHA emphasized that the likelihood of discouragement and discrimination increases when safety programs are linked to lower reported injuries and illnesses. The memorandum outlines four common scenarios. One, when an employer disciplined workers injured on the job, employees must have a way to report injuries and illnesses. Two, when an employer disciplines workers for the time or manner in which they report an injury. Three, when a worker is disciplined for an injury as a result of violating a safety rule. OSHA asks, does the employer monitor the workplace regularly for safety compliance? Does the employer met out discipline equally regardless of injury? And finally, the memorandum stresses the need to examine the kind of safety program implemented. Does the program provide incentives to dissuade workers from reporting injuries and illnesses? 
are prizes and bonuses awarded when reported injuries decrease. Discouraging and disciplining workers for reporting could be considered unlawfully discriminatory. It also violates the employer's obligation to document injuries and illnesses. OSHA notes there are positive ways to implement safety practices. Examples include rewarding workers who identify hazards, participate in investigations, and offer suggestions on how to make the job safer or complete safety training. That was uh, Rick Smith with his uh, labor history in two minutes. Um, good stories there. The radium girls especially, women who were working with radium, painting um, radium onto watch dials when everybody thought radium was like a wonder drug, and the women were even told to put the brushes in their mouth, in their lips, to make it easier give a sharp point to the brush and of course they all came down with various forms of uh, mouse cancer radium sickness teeth falling out uh, and the uh, company settled $10,000 for every woman and a $400 pension that's how much a woman's life was worth um, we've got a special visitor today. Um, her name is Vita Castaneda, and she is our, uh, our campus correspondent, along with Yaman Kabas. Every week we get on the phone with them and talk about issues from the point of view of students. They're both students at the University of California Davis. So, Vita, welcome to the show. It's nice to have you here in person. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My last name's also Morgan. What? Vita, Vita Castaneda Morgan. Morgan. Yes. Yeah. Same Sneaky. as mine. <laughs> Sneaky there. I'm doing well. Thank you. Okay. Well, as you probably know, this has been last week was a great flurry of activity in Washington, D.C. And um, I'd like to get your point of view and your opinion about it um several issues first of all probably one that you're really centrally uh concerned about is student loan forgiveness biden had talked about doing that but then he sort of uh he sort of caved on the idea i don't know the the situation it is right now but can you give us your opinion about that um, well, I think student loan forgiveness, uh, I would personally think it's important to do because especially back in the day, college was much less expensive. So it's really not fair to have such high loans just to go to college when it wasn't always that way. And I mean, I think he definitely should. I don't, I don't expect much from Biden in general. So I did vote for him. And I think obviously he should do the loan forgiveness because they do so many things like Obama, you know, did the forgiveness for the banks for a lot of things. Like, why can't they invest in America's future, which is its students and it's like working class professionals also and help them because, you know, everyone's going to be working poor, basically. And Noam Chomsky also talked about it one time and he said that part of the reason why they want 
young people to be under so many loans is so that they'll work and they won't get involved in like you know counterproductive or not counterproductive like counter revolutionary or counter the norm activities and they'll be so bogged down by debt or having to work that they won't be able to think about changing things or making things different because they're literally just trying to survive um so that's what i think okay so debt is oppression in this case yeah debt is oppression um you're kind of a slave to that monthly yeah do you know many people many students who are in in such debt uh yeah i do and I, I know that other people don't have it as good as I do. I got, you know, some scholarships and financial aid. But other people just aren't getting those things. And it's really difficult. I've had to take out loans, too. Um, so I, I think other people, though, they have to take out much bigger loans. And it's way worse. So, yeah, I know a lot of people who are doing it. And people are talking about it, yeah. Okay, well, let's move on to another issue that's, probably a big issue for uh, students, uh, working students. I know I worked all the time when I was in college. Uh, the $15 minimum wage, okay? What, uh, it, it was introduced originally in the, big, in the big bill, but then there was some shenanigans and it was oh opted gosh. out. So what can you say about a $15 minimum wage? Same. I think that, you know, there should be some smart economists or some smart people who look at the data objectively and look at what it costs on average for people of different incomes to live. And then also factor in medical emergency, factor in all these things that are human need, and then, you know, go off that basis rather than privatizing everything and acting like everything's separate. Like, you know, either way, GDP in, GDP out. Like everything that happens within the US is our business technically. So they should, you know, account for more things and have much smarter people. I think a lot of the times they have really like old people who are like out of touch, don't care, don't know about the new things. If they had younger people or I don't know who or people who had a different outlook, they could use algorithms, they could use quantum computers to get all this information easily and, you know, like easily make an idea of, okay, if we paid everybody at least 15, this would bring up the economy this much. And they would, they have models to figure out what every outcome would give, you know? So I really don't think there's any reason they shouldn't do it because they could figure out the outcome and they do it. Private companies do it all the time. So why not? You know? Okay. Um, So the other issue I wanted to ask you about is the sort of reopening of society and of the economy as a result of uh, an upscaled um, vaccine program and it seems like just a lot of wishful thinking on the part of a lot of a lot of everybody, a lot yeah. of people. Do you think this is being hurried too much or what? What's your take on this situation? I think definitely in states like Texas and here to an extent, um, I think they're moving too fast. And I think a lot of the times it's also capitalism. Like they want us to get back to work. They want business to start going as usual. And I mean, I don't know. I think 
I think they shouldn't open up so soon, really. And I think they should start figuring out ways, like even hiring the government should maybe figure out ways and hire people to like start accommodating this lifestyle for a little bit longer. Like, you know, kind of like Peace Corps, but like COVID Corps or something, you know, to have people like maybe taking groceries to older people or doing all these things that we know we have to do and based off the science, we can't take risks. So, um, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to reopen. I've been seeing a lot of people in Davis and in the Bay Area here these last few days I've been here that are just sitting outside, not six feet away, but with no mask. And so I'm not really sure, honestly, what's going on anymore. <laughs> so, in, and uh, what is the situation in Davis today? You said you were unable to go on campus without... Yeah, without a flu vaccine. So I still can't go on campus. And yeah, I've heard a lot of things about the vaccine. So I don't know. But mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Did you hear about it, Joe Biden it might have children who are detained, like from the immigrant children detained at Moffitt Airfield in Mountain View? Really? No, I haven't yeah. heard that. It was in the San Francisco Chronicle, like on Friday or Thursday morning, and I was reading it, and apparently it's a big puzzle. Sorry, I didn't mean to change the subject, but right. it's more about the fact that there's a lot of things that Biden said he would do, and he's not doing it, you know? And that's what that's what we knew, kind of, you know? Um, but yeah, they're putting a whole bunch of kids there in Mountain View. So these are kids who were separated from their parents under Trump? I guess. I'm and not sure. They're being moved to Mountain View. Yeah, and apparently a lot of, they're saying that a lot of unaccompanied minors are still coming, but I'm not really sure. So it's too bad. I wish they could find a more humane way to figure things out or deal with this or anything. That's you know? something. Our, our government goes down, and with their policies, they wreck the societies and economies of these nations. And then when people are forced to come here and try to find work here, yeah, <laughs> they're thrown in jail. Okay, yeah. well, I want to thank you for coming today. Thank you for having me. You're it welcome. It was my pleasure. It was great. And uh, this is the Labor and Love Show. This is Bill Morgan. Let's play something here. This is Women's Day, by the way. All women's. I want to play a poem by a writer named Sylvia Plath. Okay, well, forget that. Um, this is The Bee, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. We're almost done. We had uh, a special guest today from the University of California at Davis. Um, giving her opinion about various subjects. 
when I get everybody this week will be St. Patrick's Day and we'll do some Irish stuff next week in the family. Union made St. Patrick's beer and whiskey shopping list. Okay, these are the beers you can drink because they're union made. They're made under union contracts. Bass, Beck, Blue Moon, one of my favorites, Budweiser, Bush, Deep Creek, Coors, Dundee, Genesee, Jamaica Red, Killian's, another favorite. I'm looking for, uh, hmm, not here. Go to Union Made St. Patrick's Beer and Shopping List at later 411, okay? These people are in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Washington, and Philadelphia. And they compile lists of things every holiday that people can buy instead of uh, what we might call scab products. <coughs> okay, so this is the bee, and we're taking leave of you. We're going to leave you to the tender mercies of Fado Walker and his show, Flat Black Plastic. Remember, if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else works for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, negotiating table that is where you work you're on the menu never but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor and if they're labor I mean me labor and love radio where the labor meets the road can't really get our computer Have a good week and good work. I'll see you next week. And honor labor. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm... Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a pattern? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutinyradio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy, so small business advice, 
LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do, to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead passengers? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch
San Francisco, what are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin at Resolute Wine Bar, 678 Geary for Barrel of Laughs at Resolute, an amazing comedy show with the best wines curated by Resolute. On Wednesdays, join us at Asiento at and 21st and Bryant for dinner and a show at Asiento. Delicious tapas, incredible drinks, hilarious comedy. Wednesday nights at 7.30. On Fridays at 7 o'clock, join us outside mutinyradio.fm here at 21st and Florida. 7 o'clock for outdoor comedy, socially distanced in the street. And Saturdays, join us at Atlas Cafe SF at 20th in Alabama for Titans of Comedy every Saturday at 2 o'clock. Hey, keep supporting local businesses and comedy here in San Francisco with your friends at Mutiny Radio. St. Valentine's Day Mascara streaming live on Facebook Sunday, February 14th 11 a.m. An international affair hosted by Ms. Noir. Do you crave a caramel Are you longing for some lecherous night? Is it seduction from a sultry sonnet that you're seeking? Or would you rather be ravaged by a woman and drive? Care to venture a little voyeuristic versification with this lyrical libertine? Or could this wanton wordsmith maybe with an appetite for an allegorical adultery? Why not slake your literary lustings in a personal one-on-one? St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. 14th of February 2021. 11am PST Facebook Live. A date for everyone. Hosted by Ms. Noir. The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines, vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission leather working shop. All original 
pieces handcrafted for you. Jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed. You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff? Talk to Under. Go to SkinOnSkins.com. That's S-K-I-N. O-N-S-K-I-N-S dot com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check him out at SkinOnSkins.com. LSD fap acid fapping fapping acid acid fapping fapping acid fap 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. What is flat black plastic? What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat, black, black. Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of Mutiny Radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them in their own two hands. My name is Wonia Tebow of Bucks. 